Good morning and welcome to episode 788 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller along with Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how are you? All right. Daily, because the only day of the week is Monday. Who does a baseball podcast between Christmas and New Year's? What kind of I think we've, misguided people? No, I think we've pretty much set the record for most podcasts between Christmas and New Year's already. <laughs> We're doing good. Yeah, right. Well, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. How's the annual coming? I don't know, but oh, that's I right. A, I'm a doing that. By you, yes, that I'm doing that. It's going well. I'm doing that too. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid idea. Is it done? It's pretty close. The comments are all done. The essays are all done. The fungos are all done. Front and back of the book is all done. It needs to be, uh, we'll all proof it one more time once we get the PDF and the top 101 has to be done. Uh-huh. And I think that's it. I think there might be there might be two essays that are having finishing touches put on them. Good. So pretty much done. It's always a fun day when you get the PDFs and you have to read the whole book in a day or two. <laughs> for me, you mean, not for you. Not for anyone else. No. No. Although no. last year you did, uh, I don't know why, but I last year we that, sent yeah. it Yeah, we sent it to you for some reason. You never touch the annual because you're smart. And <laughs> last year we sent it to you and you opened it and I sent it to you and like 40 seconds later I got an email <laughs> saying table of contents. Ba- ba- what what was it? It was baseball with one L <laughs> was yeah. in the table of contents. Let me find it. <laughs> oh, yes. The table of contents said Patoka leaderboards. Patoka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Good times. Yeah. Really. Uh, also, baseball prospectus had one L. That was it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Both. No. Uh, you, told, you told me. Only tell you something if it was worth mentioning. And I said, <laughs> it said Patoka. And you said, well, this is worth mentioning. What was the date on that? <laughs> January 9th. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Because we, uh, we basically have it out the door by then. So yeah, that was, that was after we had already reviewed it. Yeah. But we don't review, see like the table of contents we have nothing to do with. And we just, by that point, we're so exhausted that we, mm-hmm. like, I guess we look at it, but do we? <laughs> really yeah, right and you need fresh eyes yeah exactly and so uh so that was a bi- a little bit of a panic moment <laughs> well feel free to send me the leaderboards and the table of contents again i was a little I was, right. I was a little disappointed that in your hour-long review of the entire six hundred thousand page book you didn't notice that we left out jacob turner <laughs> <laughs> i didn't notice that you were way too low on the royals Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> Great one. All right. Um, so I do you have any uh, anything to talk about? Goodness, no. All right. So I have a question for you, Ben. Okay. What if some stat head team was able to figure out by you know looking at the numbers and so on uh, that players' birth weight was predictive of their careers? Okay, so they found out that if you're born under six pounds, you're likely to underperform your draft slot. If you're born under four pounds, you're especially likely to. If you're born, you know, between seven and eight, you're going to be golden. And I don't know, maybe there's a point at the top where it starts to be bad too. If a team started asking players for their birth weights, 
would there be a backlash? Is there any point where we finally say enough is enough? You're not allowed to judge babies. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think birth weights would be it. Oh, God. I think people would fork over the birth weights. Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to figure out any. Complete DNA sequencing might be a minor hurdle. Why? If we get to that point. Why? Why that? That seems more central to your identity. What if teams look and find out that you're going to have a an illness in the next like if 20 years? Like if your UCL is slightly abnormal, for instance, <laughs> yeah, just right? a little smaller than normal. Yeah. I There's got to be some point where we recognize that all these teams are acting rationally and appropriately for the demands of their bosses, and we just say but we don't like it, and so we're going to set limits on what you can ask for, right? What prompted this? I don't know. I was just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, don't I think, was thinking uh... about a baby. I was thinking about a poor little baby born three pounds, and some baseball team is like not drafting him. Looking at this baby, looking at this tiny little baby in his tiny little incubator and saying not touching him. Hmm. And it made me mad. Yeah, maybe if teams ask for phrenological information, yeah, want to measure the shape of your head, yeah, maybe that would be a problem. Yeah, I, don't know. I would think that. I'd think that by the time you get to the draft, the differences in birth weight don't matter anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I'm not suggesting that they do. <laughs> well, it's I a, think the players would also think that it's a thought experiment, though. I'm trying to figure yeah. out if there's any point where we say that teams. Uh, teams acting in their own good interest is unacceptable because you know look hey we all believe in capitalism we all believe in the free market but we don't believe that you should be able to most of us some of us do but most of us don't believe you should be able to uh, dump your toxins in the river or pay a dollar 45 an hour we believe in some places where uh the you know a governing body should be able to tell you that the free market uh, is does not serve the good of the people and i just feel like you know, the, one of the I think one of the most one of the recurring themes of the show of this year of 2015 was whether we feel comfortable with a totally free market baseball system where teams can act in ways that we find tacky, distasteful, uh, uncompetitive, uh, in order to serve their own team's competitive drive. And uh, and I, I just as the year ends, I'm kind of just wondering whether there is a point. Whether they're where, where the line is, and that's why I was thinking about babies, because everybody loves babies. We're mm-hmm. all we're all fans of babies, but not only do we love babies, Ben, but I yeah. dare say we all love small babies, especially. I don't know if I really am pro babies. <laughs> given given Other those, people's babies, we we like our own babies. Give you don't I assume. you wish nothing but the best for babies. Sure, you don't care to be around them, right? But but you do wish the best for babies. Yes. And I hope uh, that they grow up and become something other than babies. Yeah, exactly. Ball players. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, I'm just, I don't know. I was just wondering if maybe that was the line. If I, I'm trying to find the exact line where somebody would step in and yeah, say, well, and say, no, Chris Bryant has to be on the opening day roster. <laughs> well, this has been an issue more so in other sports probably than baseball. There was a ESPN, the mag article about a year ago by Pablo Torre and Tom Haberstroh about biometric testing in the NBA and the movement to track everything that players do, both 
on the field or on the court, but also off and tracking their sleep habits and their workout habits and all that. One of their lines from it was, the literary specter haunting sports burgeoning information age is no longer Michael Lewis and Moneyball, but George Orwell and 1984. Boom. Yeah, there it is. There it is. I don't think they mentioned birth weight, but lots of other things that the teams tell the players it's kind of in their interest to share this information. And maybe it is, if they're very diligent about it, or if they could get better in some way, there are ways in which it might benefit the player. But it's also sort of scary because there are ways in which it could be used against the player and it's sort of a privacy concern. So I don't know that that's come up as much in baseball, at least not publicly, really, but it will soon if it hasn't yet. Do you think that, so right now as it is, teams draft a player and either before, to some degree before, they have questionnaires, and to some degree after, they make them fill out, you know, they make them do physicals and and have MRIs. Uh, They essentially require players, 17-year-old kids, sometimes 18, sometimes 22. They're not all. 17 but they require these kids who have uh, little money and little leverage uh, to uh, to give them all their medical information and this feels like a a little bit of an imbalance of power for sure uh, and I wonder whether do you think that these teams have a right to this information or if say Scott Boris with you know say there was a year where Scott Boris had you know 11 of the top 30 prospects or maybe Scott Boris and four other agents decide, to band together and they have 17 of the top 40 prospects and they all say, forget it. You guys don't have a right to that. Do you think that they do have a right to that? Would you consider that to be too far on the agent's part to refuse this information? Yeah, I think you could. Whoa, you you would refuse it. Oh, you think you could. Okay. So not too far. It might hurt your client though. Well, clearly (laughs) the reason that clearly the reason that they do it right now is because they think that it would hurt them if they refuse that it would be, if they were one out of, you know, 2000 draftees, and one out of 30 first rounders yeah. to refuse it, then it would hurt them. However, right. I do wonder whether they will figure out a way. I mean, it's tricky because they're all competing with each other for mm-hmm. finite uh, draft bonus dollars, and they're all competing, you know, with each other. You know, they're they're at best they're independent of each other, but at you know at worst they're literally competing with each other for money. Uh, however, I do wonder whether there's a point where they figure out a way to essentially tell teams, no, we don't, you get to look at us. You get to spend a year watching us play baseball. You do not get to put uh, dyes in our bloodstream and see what it shows up. You know, you don't, the, uh, you know, the, you know, McPhail didn't get to in 1960 and you don't get to in 2015. Mm -hmm. And you just look, use your eyes, use your scouting bureau. You do not get to use doctors, you know, to probe us. And uh, I think, uh, personally, I would feel better about that. Well, it's if they could unionize somehow, that would be easier. But obviously, they're not members of the union. You would think that that's something where the union would get involved with major league players if that starts to become a concern that teams are asking too much of players as far as information on their personal lives goes or their performance goes. But draftees don't have the same protection, so... That would be tough because there'd always be someone who doesn't mind sharing and just wants to get drafted, and he would consent to share that information. So I wonder how I much know. it matters. I, I mean, yeah, so, I don't, that's the that's what I was going to ask. I don't know whether you would decide not to draft someone because you can't do a test that tells you 
if he's going to develop some disease in 15 years. Particularly for a hitter. I mean, if pitchers, I I would guess that all teams want to see how much strain, how much uh, wear is on the UCL for pitchers. But if hitters said no, not giving you medical information, uh, just not doing it, I wonder if it would matter at all. I wonder if it would matter more than 3%. I mean, Bryce Harper got, what did Bryce Harper get? Like 9, 9.9 or something? Bryce Harper, it probably wouldn't have affected him at all, right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't think so. So, I don't know. I could see it happening. I don't know. I guess I would guess. It's hey, not that much money for, for draftees. It's different if it's a $200 million free agent. Yeah. For a draftee, even the most expensive guy is not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. So, now I have to figure out why it doesn't queeze me out for free agents. Why I think that there's a distinction between those two. Well, because they have actual agents instead of maybe because maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's because they have actual agency uh-huh they they Taking actually somewhere yeah, to go right yeah. they're not they're not they are neither children <laughs> which these are literally children but they are neither children uh nor are they um constrained by a uh, monop- monopolistic market suppressing mechanism mm-hmm. that owners have agreed to against their consent no, not once they get their six years of service time in. Yeah, so maybe that's why. All the same, probably I should figure out a better reason for why it doesn't bother me with agent uh, free agents. Mm-hmm. Other than that, all right. Uh, so then, Ben. Yeah. Anything to talk about yet? <laughs> nope. All right, so I wanted to ask you, besides that, I wanted to ask uh, – no, I didn't want to ask you. I don't want to ask you anything. I don't have anything to ask you. Ben, Yeah. in our time doing this podcast – I have labeled 3,283 emails podcast cues. Okay? Uh-huh. Okay. We, we have not answered most of them. No. I'm going to pick a couple without looking. Wow. <laughs> We're really getting desperate. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm going way back and I'm going to just, I'm going to old ones hmm. and I'm going to see. I have what... 4,614. Really? Why do I have more than you? I don't know. Good mm-hmm. question. Oh, you know, I didn't, I don't think I started labeling them until. Ah some point okay all right august 27 2014 <laughs> right michael what is the point of putting a player like matt latos on revocable waivers when there is no way a team is going to trade them why subject the player to the thought that they could still be traded in the next few days golly i'm glad i'm already glad we did this because because just think like isn't it fun to be in a mental space where Matt Latos was seen as being something better than garbage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Contract garbage, not human garbage, although we can debate. Uh, Matt Latos, not 15 months ago, was seen as valuable. <laughs> like, that's, that's true. crazy. And <laughs> that's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> like, 15 months ago, Matt Latos was so good that you would never trade him during the waiver mm-hmm. deadline. Matt yeah. Latos! Matt Latos, who was waived mid-September and signed by the Angels, even though he wouldn't be eligible for the postseason. <laughs> Matt Latos, who threw three and two-thirds innings for his last team. Matt Latos, who had who pitched for three teams last year, had a 78 ERA plus, and uh, managed a uh, whopping five innings per start. That Matt Latos. That low birth weight came back to bite him. That's crazy. It always gets you, eventually. God. Dude, at this time, Matt Latos la- Matt Latos in 2014 had a 3.25 ERA. That yeah. is crazy. If you'd asked me to guess 
if you'd asked me to guess when this email came out, I would have got it within, you know, a quarter of a run. But if you asked me right now, hey, Sam, what was Matt Latos ERA in 2014? I would have guessed four, four, five. Is it like six something? It, no, in 2014, it was three, oh, two, five. 2014, yeah, yeah. It was three, two, five. Yeah. He was good. Yeah. Matt Latos was good when we were on episode 500 and something. <laughs> That's crazy, Ben. All right. So the point of putting a player, I'm just going to take out Matt Latos. I'm just going to read this email without the <laughs> extremely distracting name Matt Latos in it. Mm-hmm. What is the point of putting a player on revocable waivers when there is no way a team is going to trade them? So remind me, I'm going to try to answer this. I answered this a long time ago. I answered this in an article once a long time ago. But there are a few reasons. Uh, one is literally to um, to camouflage the guys that you do want to get through. By putting essentially every player in the league on waivers, it makes it easier to sneak guys through that you do want to get. Right, mm-hmm. because yeah. if because teams don't so, I talked to um, after the Adrian Gonzalez at all trade uh, to the Dodgers. I talked to a GM about how Adrian Gonzalez made it through because clearly Adrian Gonzalez had value and was not a player who should have cleared waivers, and yet he did clear waivers, and that seemed odd to me. And so I talked to a GM, and he said, "Well, basically, you don't. There's a this whole thing is run by a little bit of." Uh, GM unwritten rules where you don't want to claim anybody that you don't think you're going to actually make a trade for. Because if you start claiming every single person that you're willing to take on, uh, then you basically are delubricating the entire system. Everybody gets mad at you. And then they start blocking your guys punitively. And then you can't do the things you want to do. So there's kind of like everybody just sort of agrees to go along with this. And so, for instance, if Mike Trout were put on waivers in August, probably someone would claim him. But a lot of teams, I don't know if Mike Trout is a great example, but my understanding is that like a lot of teams wouldn't trade him because they basically would go, well, clearly the Angels aren't going to trade him to us. They're putting him through for some reason, but you know, realistically, they're not going to trade him. They're certainly not going to trade him to us. They're especially certainly not going to give us that claim. And so you might, you know, if you see Mike Trout go on waivers and you go, oh, there's a great chance for me to get Mike Trout, you might call up, you know, Jerry Depoto at the time or Epler and say, hey, what do you, I mean, what are you looking for? And, you know, the GM would go, yeah, I mean, you know, we're not going to trade Mike Trout or we want seven of your best pieces plus the next seven as well. And you go, well, we're not going to do that. And so then you just let him go. And so a lot of players who wouldn't clear waivers on their merits clear waivers just because teams aren't realistically know they're not going to be able to trade for him. And so then you put them through. The reason you put Latos through besides the camouflage factor is that there is a possibility there is a possibility, small, but but a possibility that you will end up making a trade in August involving, maybe you make a trade involving, oh, I don't know, Carl Crawford and Josh Beckett, who are salary dumps, not guys that are you're going to have trouble getting through waivers, but it's harder to make a trade with just those two guys. It's much easier to make a trade if you've previously put your entire roster through waivers and the other team has put their entire roster through waivers and now you can essentially use a whole bunch of players to fill it out. So you put Matt Latos through because maybe you're trying to get who was on the... What team was Matt Latos on? I have no <laughs> idea what team he was on in 2014. The Reds? That yeah. was before the Desclafani trade, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the Reds are trying to trade... 
Brandon Phillips and you know, they're trying to trade Homer Bailey's contract away and they want to trade him to the Dodgers and the Dodgers say, but we don't want to give up any prospects. Uh, we'll take on the money, but it's not really enough for us. Why don't you throw in Matt Latos and then we'll give you something else. And now that Matt Latos has already cleared waivers, he's easier to include. I believe that's the answer to this. Okay. Well, I hope Michael is still with us 16 months later. Let's see. I hope he's very patient. Hang on. I will see what his last, let's see when Michael's last email to us was. If not, we can just, yep, December 7th. He's still on. (laughs) Good. Well, there you go. All right. We we get there eventually. Question answered. (laughs) On July 8th, we got a question from Christian who wanted us to grade his trade, and we never, ever answer any, <laughs> Go. any question it. about a trade. Do it. A hypothetical trade we never answer. Do but it. On July 8th, 2015, or 15, 2014, 14. Christian asked, I send McCutcheon and Josh Beckett and get Bryce Harper and Matt Latos. 10-team categories league. So he uh, sends, so he, he sends I would McCutcheon? Say he, he sends McCutcheon and who? Josh Beckett, for, and he got Bryce Harper and Matt Latos. So, so McCutcheon would, for Harper, basically. Basically, yeah. Should so have done since it. this trade happened, Beckett retired and Latos tanked, but Bryce Harper became the best player in baseball. So yeah. I'd say Christian did pretty well. Good you job. You get an A, Christian. Congratulations <laughs> on your fourth place finish in the 2015 fantasy season. Yep. All right. Danny, February 6th, 2014. Hey, gang, some Twitter folks were making jokes about Freddie Freeman's average annual value compared to Albert Poole's, Ryan Howard, etc. It was quickly pointed out that comparing Friedman, Freeman's deal with his RBers bought out to a deal which covers free agent years exclusively isn't quite fair. In other words, Freeman's... Con- I wonder why we didn't answer this. <laughs> <laughs> Freeman's contract is more like five and $105 million dollars making his average annual value more like something in the zone of $21 million. I understand this logic when comparing contracts, but people are acting... (laughs) (laughs) Hang on. February 4th, 2014, (laughs) Gabe. (laughs) There are reports that Yasiel Puig might lead off for the Dodgers this year. Don Mattingly was reported saying that the thought process behind this move is to get Puig more fastballs. Traditional thinking says leadoff guys will get a plethora of fastballs to keep the lineup, to keep the top of the lineup off the bases to prevent the middle of the lineup from hitting with runners on. However, with a hitter like Puig, who lacks plate discipline at this point in his career and will chase balls out of the zone and doesn't handle or lay off breaking balls real well, will pitchers pitch him like a traditional leadoff guy do pitchers still pitch to hitters according to their place in the lineup? Or will they rely on scouting reports? If in some crazy universe, the Blue Jays batted Jose Bautista ninth, would pitchers still pitch to him like Jose Bautista or a nine-hole hitter? Going back to Puig, if pitchers continue to try to get Puig out with breaking balls and pitches out of the zone, couldn't the Dodgers counter by batting someone like D. Gordon ninth, assuming he gets on base higher than a 313 cliff, to increase his chances of stealing bases off breaking balls or balls in the dirt Thanks, Gabe. Now, first of all, A plus irony on the D Gordon knock. Really, <laughs> really good. D Gordon, 20th or so best player in baseball. Punchline, not that long ago. 
Well done, Gabe. Well done, us, for probably nodding and agreeing while reading this in February 2014. D. Gordon, man. Remember when? <laughs> remember that? Remember how there was only one thing we knew that one night last December when the Dodgers made 45 moves and we're like, what does it all mean? Right. And the only thing we knew <laughs> was that the Marlins were stupid. Yeah. And they killed that deal. Yeah. <laughs> they got Dean Gordon. Like basically the Dodgers traded, like I know there were a lot of moves, but basically the Dodgers traded five years of D Gordon for one year of Howie Kendrick. And we're like, yep, we get that. <laughs> Crazy, yeah. man. Yeah. Digging into the mailbag is, <laughs> it's an exercise in remembering how little we know about right. baseball. So the question That's is. a good question though. It is I mean, a good We question. get a lot of good questions that we would have to do a study on to it's answer. A, it's a <laughs> really good question. That's the problem. No, it is, but it is a good question. What do you think? Do you think that Yasiel Puig batting first, fourth, seventh, would there be a significant change in pitch types in those three scenarios? We no. can rule out the Jose Bautista batting night. That one, no. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's intentionally an extreme example. But no, he would pitch. I mean, they would pitch Jose Bautista essentially the same, very cautiously, no matter where he was batting. But Puig first, fourth, and seventh. How big a difference? Well, I mean, we're we're talking about lineup protection mostly. I mean, unless we're talking about pitchers just believing something about the player based on where he's hitting in the lineup. So no, yeah, I think we're talking line of protection. Yeah. Line of protection. I don't, it's weird. I don't, I didn't really think of it initially as line of protection. I thought of it as like, well, you don't want him to get on base in front of better batters, but I guess that's the definition of line of protection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think lineup protection would have some impact on how these guys are pitched. I, I think the studies have shown that, Overall, the lineup protection doesn't really matter that much, but it does change the shape of your production somewhat. Like if you have a really good hitter batting behind you, you might get more fastballs, you might get more pitches to hit, and you might hit them more. But if you don't have a good batter batting behind you and you're a good batter, then you'll get walked more instead. And it comes out about equal. I think it's about a wash. People have shown that if you don't have someone good, if you don't have protection, then you'll just walk a bunch and walking is good too. And so you're still valuable to your team, but it would affect what your slash line looks like. And it presumably would affect what pitch types you see and where you see them. So yeah, I think there would be some effect, even if it would not really change the the overall value. Yeah, I mentioned maybe six months or so ago, my hypothesis that line of protection is actually in reverse, that protection comes from having guys on base in front of you, uh, Uh if you're a good hitter, rather than having good hitters behind you. And so I guess in the sense that Puig, you know, again, this is February 2014, where Puig represents great hitter and not 730 OPS hitter or whatever he had. But let's assume Puig is dominant hitter Puig then uh, I, I guess it would affect him somewhat to have fewer runners on base in front of him. And that's I think maybe that's a little bit of the idea behind having your best hitter bat maybe second instead of first or about having your ninth hitter, uh, your uh, position player hit ninth instead of the pitcher hit ninth is that, you know, you do want to have runners on base in front of your good hitters. And maybe part of that is that it gets him uh, pitched a little bit uh, more honestly. Uh, but otherwise, I would basically feel like the first pitch of the game might be a fastball like 
5% more often. And after that, mm-hmm. it would essentially just be baseball. Yeah. To him. If baseball were different. Yeah. All right. September 18th, 2013. Guy asks, Dear Ben and Sam, I always think about this. I wonder if he still always thinks about it. <laughs> like he's just, it's two and a half years later and he has not thought of a single thing different than this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dear Ben and Sam, I always, by the way, Ben and Sam, these are pure Ben and Sam's before yes, you is... before you got in everybody's head <laughs> and made them think about which order. Dear mm-hmm. Ben and Sam, I always think about this whenever a player fouls a ball off his body during an at bat. If pain causes an adrenaline rush in the brain, an adrenaline increases focus, vision, strength, and speed. Do you think it's possible that a hitter has a better chance of hitting the ball hard immediately after fouling a pitch off his foot, leg, or other body part, assuming there is no deeper injury that could inhibit the swing? Is there any conceivable way of measuring this? I'm assuming there is not. I know you won't read this part, but... Re- oh, <laughs> nope, not gonna. Thank you, guy, for the warning. All right, so... I uh, I mean the the common the common belief the conventional wisdom is the opposite that mm-hmm. a batter who's in pain doesn't want to be in pain again and therefore you can attack him with certain pitches that he is loath to swing at on the fear that he is going to hit a baseball in the same spot and so this would be counter to the conventional wisdom yes yes now, the conventional wisdom does not include the effect of adrenaline. No, it doesn't. And there's, well, I guess there is a way to measure that. At, we could ask uh, Tom Haberstraw <laughs> right? about that, for uh-huh. instance. Uh, but I guess we just are stuck with hypotheses here. Uh, yeah. I would guess that, I mean, pain, geez, man, pain does not make me feel like a better athlete. No, <laughs> it could be, maybe it could be distracting in a good way. If you're, uh, if you're nervous or if you're not in the right frame of mind, maybe the, the pain would take your mind off the other stuff and make you think about the pain instead. There's no way to know unless we uh, started tracking every time someone fouled the ball off himself and then saw what he did after that. How many balls would you want? before you felt like you had enough to do an article about this, to do a study? <laughs> Probably need like a, a thousand. Oh, whoa. Okay. <laughs> so a thousand. So you could probably get, I mean, I don't know what what they'd ask for, but you could probably get Baseball Info Solutions to do that for you. I mean, you'd have to arrange it in advance and compensate them for their labor. Uh-huh. But yeah. it's conceivable. Is it a... <laughs> It's hard to imagine why it'd be worthwhile. <laughs> yes, it is. That's probably why we didn't answer the question the first time. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if it did benefit them. Would you tell players to exactly foul the ball off themselves? <laughs> I mean, that's see, that's exactly the thing. Like, this is a situation where you might find a result here. You might find some significance here, but uh, you're you're almost certainly not going to find any significance that is good enough that would to change any any decision in this process like you're not probably going to tell the pitcher throw pitches that will make him foul balls off his foot you're probably not going to find uh results that make it so that the manager would see that and go oh i'm gonna pinch hit for that guy now 
You're mm-hmm. probably not going to say, uh, you know, well, I don't even know what you would do. If you if the hitter got good, you wouldn't find enough that the pitcher would go, well, we better intentionally walk him now, or we better have the outfielders. I guess the closest thing is maybe you'd have the outfielders back up a step or come in a step. Yeah, maybe you could figure out. Maybe maybe guys are slower. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're behind a little bit after they foul ball off. So you oh, could position your fielders differently. Well, less likely to pull the ball. Something you like could that. certainly. I mean, if I think it's already safe to assume that, in fact, teams already do adjust. They do react to this. They think that if a fa- if a pitcher throws a sinker inside. And the hitter fouls it off his knee, foot, or ankle, or shin, or heel, or whatever that bone is. Uh, is that your ankle bone? Is there, a, there is such a thing. Is that it? This knob? Is that an ankle bone? This knob here? This one? I'm pointing at it right here. Uh, yeah, I can't see. Uh, if you do that, then they probably... It would be fun. Okay, I uh, I will now admit that it would actually be fun to find some, at least some scores of these and then look at what the next pitch is. So in fact, fine, whoever asked this, I am going to do this this year. <laughs> I'm at, you know, now that you mention it, yes, I'm <laughs> going to do this study. Not to see how the hitters do. I don't think that I, I think you're right. It would take too many pitches and I'm not that interested. But I am actually curious whether a batter that fouls a ball off of his foot, ankle, bone, knee, shin, knobby thing, uh, does have reason to expect a pitch in a certain location on the next pitch. Oh. <laughs> so I think it's, uh, I so think it's mad, your... so mad that now I have to add it. Hang on, <laughs> adding it to the list. This one I'm going to do though. This one I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to around the time the season starts. I'm going to put out a call for people to let me know whenever a guy hops around in the batter's box because he's in pain. Uh-huh. I think it's your medial malleolus. That's and the, that's the knob on the inside of your ankle. Thank you. There's a Medi- lateral malleolus on the outside of your ankle. Oh, interesting. Medial foul ball off the medial malleosis. <laughs> that is now on the tickler file with a whole bunch of things that I have not <laughs> done. Yeah. Some of these are good. It's an interesting question because if the pitcher does come back and throw that same pitch again, so the idea behind throwing it again is that the batter is not going to want to swing at it because yeah. it just hurt him. So it's like that an aversion tentative. therapy sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, or if he does swing at it, then he'll be kind of like, ooh. <laughs> right. And yet, you would think that being able to predict the next pitch would be an would benefit the batter. Exactly. If you could really sit on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, really at that point, if the batter could just sit, he'd be happy. Yeah. But if he could sit <laughs> on that pitch, especially, yeah, it'd be good for him. All right. We'll find uh, out when you do right. your study. Somebody, uh, somebody, I don't care who, email me, podcast at baseballpersocials.com on March 27th or so, reminding me that I'm going to do this. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, May 4th, 2014. I'm going to go. I'll, I'll do this one, and then I'll go. Uh, I'll jump into 2015, and then we'll be done. Eric Hartman. Mm, friend of the show. Great friend of the show. I feel like the question of how an average person would do an MLB has been covered before. You're right. But I have a bit of a different question. Assuming I'm an average male and I have infinite opportunities in my current physical state, parenthetical, near my physical prime, though sadly, Ben can attest, I'm nothing special. How many ABs would it take? How many ABs would it take for me to hit a home run off a league average pitcher? P.S. Unnecessary postscript. All right. Uh, (laughs) How many... 
how many you've met eric i haven't met uh-huh. eric so uh let should we assume eric is an average north american male or should yeah. we okay. canadian male yeah definitely All right. okay so he's an average uh mm-hmm. off an average major league pitcher who presumably is treating him see this this is always what it comes down to because you know i i'm gonna i don't think this is gonna be in the book so i think i can just talk about this sean one of our pitchers I've always had the question, I've talked about it on this show, of how hard it is to hit. And, you know, I, I feel like there's different evidence here. The evidence on one hand is that pitchers uh, who are in no way, absolutely no way selected for their ability to hit, their athleticism, yes, but their ability to hit, no. Uh, they all get hits. Every single one of them gets a hit in the majors yeah. against majors. That's like amazing. Like when you think about it, that's an amazing thing that even knuckleballers, they all get hits off major league pitchers. That blows my mind. And they basically all do it every 40 at-bats or so at the very worst. And is that right? 40? Yeah, every 40 at-bats at the very, very worst. So in that way of thinking about it, it's pretty easy to get a hit, right? Mm-hmm. Every single person can do it, right? Right. Okay. Now, the flip side is that Chris Davis struck out Adrian Gonzalez. <laughs> uh-huh. And like he was just throwing pitches and Adrian Gonzalez is like, whoop, this is hard. So that is a way of saying that it's actually really hard. And when you look at how pitchers, how position players do when they pitch, as Jeff Sullivan has documented, it's not necessarily a perfectly reliable trial, but they have like an ERA, a collective ERA of like seven or so, which is not that bad. I mean, that's like, you know, that's Shane Green from April 18th on is uh-huh. how good position players pitching are. And they're also not so... To some degree, to a very small degree, they're selected for their ability to pitch. But basically, they're usually just the scrub who's available to do it. They're not pitchers. And yes, they throw hard because they're major leaguers. But they're not doing anything. And they still have an ERA of like seven, which is amazing. And so that would suggest that it's impossible to hit. So I've always wondered. So uh, in uh, Stomper Summer, I had Sean, who is our best pitcher, one of our best pitchers, uh, pitched to me in July and after a game. And he, it took him about 15 pitches to get one past me. I didn't hit them hard, but I fouled them off. I hit a couple fair, you know, maybe even a couple into the outfield. I took some pitches that were out of the zone. And then the 15th one, he threw me a slider that was way outside and I chased it. And so he got one past me. Now, Sean, this is not a great experiment because Sean was not, he was treating me like Sam, you know, right. like he didn't want to hit me in the nose. Mm-hmm. He didn't have a, he wasn't working a plan. He also was probably throwing about five miles an hour slower than he usually does. He hadn't warmed up. He wasn't coming in hot. Sean, I'm fairly confident Sean could strike me out 30 or 40 times in a row <laughs> before I put any bat on the ball if there was a runner on third and one out. Yeah. Do you also feel that way? I mean, Sean's yeah. awesome and I'm bad. <laughs> yeah. You have scouted him extensively. But uh, that's true. I do know his, (laughs) I do know when he's coming with the overhand, but it's hard to, um, so, so that's always the question that you have to ask when you answer this is, is the guy pitching you like your Eric Hartman or Mm -hmm. is the guy pitching you like your Miguel Cabrera? Right. Now, if he's pitching you like Miguel Cabrera and it's a one run game and uh, there's a runner on first with one out in the ninth, uh, I would guess that Eric uh, it would be, on average, not fewer than 30,000 plate appearances. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there would be uh, too many plate appearances to establish that you could ever get a hit. I'm not saying that, well, we're talking home run. Right, home run, yes. Yeah. I'm not saying that you can't do it. It might take $6 billion, It might take 30001 It might never happen. The universe might end before. But I mm-hmm. am not ruling out the positive. It is not a, the chances are not zero. They are extremely low, though. Extremely low. And yeah, if, if you if have enough swings, if you have millions of swings and you're not getting tired, it's just this imaginary world. You could swing as hard as you possibly could on every, every single swing. Yeah. And that still might not be enough. It might not be. I but it I, might be. I probably wouldn't bet against you. Yeah. How, you however, can... if you have 30,000 swings with a mm-hmm. wood bat against a guy who's trying not to give up a home run, uh, I would bet no on 30,000 or fewer. And yeah. I'm not betting yes on 30,000 or more. I'm just <laughs> not ruling it out. There's there's just there's only so much space in the strike zone or in the strike zone area. So enough swings and enough pitches. At some point, you will hit the ball on the sweet spot with your max power swing. And will that be enough to hit a home run? It depends on what your max power swing is. But I would think that average American male swinging at maximum power, hitting it in the perfect position, which would happen after enough swings. I think if you happen to have the perfect timing too, you could maybe pull one into the first row <laughs> occasionally but yeah it would it would not happen in a short enough time frame that you could actually do it in person all right last one march 23rd 2015 brett asks if you were in charge of a big league club and you had a pitcher and a hitter both of whom projected to have no true outcomes in the upcoming season so no strikes no uh, no strikeouts no walks, no home runs. Every single ball batted and in play, but projected to be average in all other respects. Who would you plan to trust with more batters faced or plate appearances? So would you rather have a hitter who never strikes out walks or homers or a pitcher, I think he's saying, or a pitcher who never left? And they would have theoretically the same line, right? And so you just have to figure out whether that line is a neutral line or not, right? Yeah. They have the same... They would essentially be like a 300 hitter, like a 290 hitter with a 290... Well, I guess well, we're allowing every... hit by pitches, so maybe yeah. he's a 300 on base. If you put then... every pitch in play, then <laughs> if this is a real person, then obviously you're going to be reaching for some... Really far away balls that you can't actually hit hard. So I'm guessing that his batting average on balls in play would not be a league average. Let's let's assume that nobody has <laughs> figured out the compulsion to never walk strikeout or or homer. Okay, well, so pitchers they didn't with Alcides Escobar this this <laughs> so, October. So. so so we're assuming that he hits in a normal way. Then he'd have basically like a 295 batting average maybe a 300 on base percentage. And then what would your isolated power be if you never homered, but <laughs> never struck out? Like you'd hit, I don't know, you'd have seven, six, you'd have 700 at bats. You probably would double 45 times and triple six. So yeah, like that's 50 or something. So that'd be, it'd be like 90, uh-huh. 80 or 90. So you'd have like a three, like a 295, 300, 370 ish uh, slash line. 
So I think that you, I think if I'm understanding this correct, correct, correctly, you would take that for the pitcher and you would not take that for the hitter. That would be good news. So the three true, and that's, I think we know that. I mean, that's, I think it's going back to BP forever, the fascination and a set obsession and affection for three true outcome hitters is basically that they're not just fun, but that they're, that's good, that that's a good strategy for a hitter. Nobody ever talks about the three true outcome pitchers. They talk about the three true outcome hitters because it's always been kind of assumed that that's an underrated but productive way of hitting. And I think that's the case. So if you took mm-hmm. out the three true outcomes and you'd just be left with essentially pitchers outcomes, I think. Yeah. Mostly. Okay. All right. So do you agree? I do. Baseball over. Let's go. <laughs> All right. The very first question we ever got after the first few to podcast at Baseball Perspectives, which we're thanking Kevin and Jason for up and in because that was their email <laughs> email address also. The first one that was intended for us was from Matthew in Wellington, New Zealand, and he wanted to know about David Phelps. He wanted to know whether David Phelps would fit as the number five starter next year, meaning 2013, or whether he, or whether he was better suited for a long man or late inning type role. Literally still do not know the answer to that. Or would the Yankees be better served including him in a trade for somebody this offseason? And they they did do that. Can so. I can I tell you uh, that we addressed this actually in the annual? And oh. uh, I'm going to give everybody a sneak peek. Okay. David Phelps, player comment for the 2016 annual. The swingman's swingman continued his sneak assault on his role, reaching a career-high 19 starts to continue an interesting trend. And then we have bullet points. 2012. 57% of his innings as a starter. 2013, 76%. 2014, 86%. 2015, 96%. While you might speculate that we're watching the Peter Principle played out in bullet time, the curious thing is that Phelps has pretty much already found the level of his own incompetence in the bullpen, where over the past three years, he has allowed 5.91 runs per nine. He's been a little better when he starts, 4.8 runs allowed with better control and slightly fewer homers, but is in fact not the master of this niche role that we might have generously called him at some point. Rather, he's just not great. Yeah, Matthew was pretty excited about Dave and his weapons grade two-seamer, mm. as he put it. And I responded to the email because I was so excited that we had gotten an email, even though I didn't think we were going to answer it. I said, thanks for the email. And for listening to the show since the start, we'll try to find a way to work Phelps in at some point in the future. And we did it. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Three years later, we did it. So you're Phenomenal. welcome, Matthew. I like that. I like this show, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We have fun, don't we? We sure do. We're effectively wild. All right. So you can send us emails that we'll answer two, three years down the road when we're desperate at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate and review, subscribe to the show on iTunes. And as always, please support our sponsor, the Play Index, baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. By the way, it was... Ah, ben, <laughs> second email. Second uh-huh. email was um, Steve Osama, uh-huh. who uh, was chastising us for forgetting that the Astros had switched leagues. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got a bunch of emails about that, I remember. <laughs> By the way, it was uh, podcast hero Ned Garver's 90th birthday on Christmas, and some people in the Facebook group got 
autographed balls from Ned Garver for their Christmas present. A couple people have sent him letters and he has responded and sent back autographed cards and, and a nice note. So if you want to reach Ned Garver, our guest on episode 722, you can. He is ready and, and waiting for your letter and he will send you one back with an autograph and a baseball card. So get on that. And uh, one other bit of news, Chris Mosh, our guest from episode 779, we talked to him about shifting and what the new kinds of shifts would be and outfield shifting. And he was about to leave for the winter meetings where he was going to go job seeking. And he did get a job there. And he is going to be a player development intern for the Angels. So congratulations, Chris. All right. That's it for today. I don't really know what we're doing this week. Maybe we'll we'll do some more. <laughs> we'll see. Talk to you soon. Remember Sam, you took his hand. You took his hand instead of mine. So if you want, then you can call me. Call me any Monday. Thought about Major League Baseball for a week or so. Who's still who's playing? <laughs> did we did we talk about like Miguel Cabrera retiring yet? <laughs> did that happen? Uh, I didn't. I missed that.